Good morning. Well, it's good to be here. My wife and daughter came with me on the trip, Lita and uh, Carrie, over to the right. They're not going to identify themselves, I don't guess. But uh, we came over the mountain from uh, Silverton. Anybody been to Silverton, Oregon? My goodness, quite a few. And uh, so I'm glad to be here today. I actually met uh, uh, Ken and Kip on a trip to Turkey that I took. Actually, I was with them just a couple of days, and then I uh, scooted off and spent about another eight days roaming around the museums of Turkey taking photos of every artifact I could find. And have an upcoming visual study Bible you'll be able to use on your iPhone, iPad, I this and that, computers and uh, Android, PC Windows, I think. Uh, with uh, video as well as uh, uh, images. So uh, that's what I was doing there. It was great to meet them on the trip. That We had a great time. We sort of began to huddle together and spend time together. And all of a sudden he said, you want to come speak at my church? And uh, where is it? Ben. Well, I've never been to Ben. First trip. So it's great to be here. Great community. And thank you for having me. Um, just a word about the trip. For next summer, if you want to go, uh, my trip, I call it Christian Study Tours as the organization, and we do Bible study tours. A lot of tours spend, because they take so many people, they spend three hours of the seven-hour day, eight-hour day in the restroom, and some other time for eating because they have to stop and take time. Uh, We do about a third more places, based on my observation of looking at people's schedules, and keep it at a reasonable cost. And all along the way, we talk about the Bible and geography, trying to make sense of the Bible where you are. And it's a good experience for you if you get a chance. I'd love to have you. Uh, What I'm going to do this morning is to give you something you've maybe not had before. I don't know, because Ken was uh, pretty excited when I mentioned some options, and he said, oh, that one. Because I'm going to uh, teach through an entire book of the Bible. And I've got two hours for this talk, so it will be pushing it for that, but I think we can do it. And, uh, and then we'll have time for Q&A later. Actually, I, I've been uh, given a certain uh, amount of time. Matter of fact, I should take off my watch and keep track of this. But um, we're going to go through a short book. So I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, I know they'll be putting some things on uh, the overhead. But uh, the book of Ruth. How many have actually read through Ruth? It's a great book. But I want to talk to you about Ruth and tell you the story, accentuate some areas that maybe you hadn't thought about, and give you a theme that the hidden God who is in control is faithful to his promises. The hidden God who is in control is faithful to his promises. And I think what I'm going to talk about, Ruth, is going to be something that you have experienced also in your life. They experienced it hundreds and thousands, more than 2,000 years ago, and I think you probably have it today. And I oftentimes call this the first Bethlehem story. There's actually a second Bethlehem story that occurred with the birth of Christ. Uh, We think about that as we move toward the end of the summer. You know, before long we'll have, uh, you know, we'll have uh, uh, Labor Day, then we'll have, uh, we'll have uh, Halloween, and then Christmas things will be in the stores by then. And then Thanksgiving and Black Friday, I think it is, and then Christmas. 
And Christmas is recounting a, an event and a story that occurred in Bethlehem. But I want to talk about the first one, the first Bethlehem story. Because in this, it gives rise to the second one. Because we encounter some individuals uh, that had they not done what they did, there would not have been a second one with the birth of Jesus. And that's the story of Ruth. We find that God, in the uh, story of Ruth, uh, gives us a background that uh, oftentimes we're not so familiar with that occurred uh, 200 years before the actual recording of the book. The book of Ruth is probably written in the time of King David. 200 years after the time of the Judges, in which Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech and Boaz and the whole group uh, ever had anything going on. And we find that the writer of the book, 200 years later in the time of David the king, uh, recounted something that was very unusual. But it tells us theologically something that's important. hope you like theology. It's a study of God and His views. Uh, we're so much into our views. God has views also. And that's what theology is about, how God views Himself and how He views His world. I hope that you like it. And one thing we find is that one God is hidden. I don't see Him anywhere. And you don't either. We see the results of God, but we don't see God. He's invisible. And so we have evidence of God in nature. We have evidence of God in our lives. We have evidence of God in Scripture. But we, we oftentimes are not thinking about those things, and we see a God who really is hidden. Hidden from the world, hidden from us. Only seen through the eyes of faith. And the hidden God, we find out, is in control as we're going to see in the book of Ruth. And we're going to find out this hidden God also is faithful to what He said He would do. Because in times of difficulty, despondency, despair, and fear, and all these other kinds of emotions that come our way, this hidden God is faithful to what He said He would do. We'll just hang in there. It's going to come about. And that's what we find in the story, that God is faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's talk about this just a moment, just a little rehearsal of the covenants that we have with Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he came to a man by the name of Abram, and he gave him something very stark. He said, leave where you are and go to where I'm going to take you. It's not a lot of information. I would want a map, know the time frame, how long it would take me, you know, where the rest stops. You know, you want all the information. But God came to Abram and said, listen, you're here. You're in the midst of a bunch of pagans that believe in multiple deities. God comes down and says, knock, knock, here I am. Abraham was not seeking God. God was seeking Abram. And I hope you realize that's how it's true in your life. Ultimately, God is always seeking us, not we Him. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. After they had sinned, that entered their life. And the first thing they did said, let's go find God and get this right. Was that their response? Let's go find God and put this straight? No, they went and hid. 
God had to find them. And so that's how it is with Abram. Abram was sent by God to a place he didn't know, to the place we call Canaan historically. And at that point, he established a covenant. We find that covenant stated in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 18. And each one of those is a further amplification and clarification of the original covenant in chapter 12. wish we had time to talk about this, but we don't. But if you read those passages, what you find out that God gives three aspects to the covenant in Genesis chapter 12. One is land, one is seed, which includes a kingdom, and three is a blessing. And you find that land and king and the, the king, uh, kingship and seed and the blessing developed in the remaining chapters, I told you, 15 and 17 and 18. So God says, I'm going to give your descendants, your physical descendants, I'm going to give a land. You know what land that is, right? It's called Israel, the place I'd like to take you. Still around. There are no, there are no Moabites anymore. There are no Babylonians anymore. No Assyrians anymore. No Hittites anymore. And I could go down the list. There still are Jews. Because God said, I'm going to give you a land and your descendants forever. I'm going to give you a seed that's forever. And I'm going to give you a blessing. Matter of fact, what I'm going to do is that the nations are going to be blessed. They don't get the land. They don't get the seed. They're called Gentiles, not Jews. But they get the blessings. And we find out in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 that because of the seed from Abram, which we know to be Jesus, that the Gentiles who had no God, not the true God, who were not part of the root of the tree, they receive a blessing of the new covenant because of that. So this is the thing. God is faithful to His covenant. Come on, cooperate. <laughs> there we go. Now, what don't you see is now the story. We're going to take a few minutes and develop the story for you. Uh, Ruth is like a diamond among coal. If you've had diamonds, you've probably seen a thing of coal. This is my best depiction. It's not there yet. There we are. Coal is not particularly valuable and sort of rough and dirty. What you find out is that the book of Ruth is a diamond among coal. If you've read the book of Judges, you'll find one recurring phrase again and again and again. Anybody know what it is? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds familiar to our age. People don't say, what does God want me to do? Because that's what I want to follow. I want to do what God wants. I want to think like God wants me to think. I want to act like God wants me to act. I want to worship like God wants me they don't say, God, what do you want, and seek to find that. They say, well, listen, what do I want? And so we, became, we become me-centered. That's not a new story. That's an old one. Now, it came about, there were a period of judges, and you had even the best judges of Israel weren't very good. I mean, the people that were the top weren't particularly great. But we usually think of someone like a Samson who had tremendous potential given by God, but little character. 
See, Samson was the strongest man that had ever been known. He did not have that physical strength because he spent a lot of time in the gym. Samson had strength from God that he could do things beyond our imagination. The gates he picked up were, you know, something like 20, 30,000 pounds. I mean, you don't do this normally. And the fact is, Samson was very powerful, but had very little character. That's true today. You have people that are very good singers and musicians and athletes and all sorts of things that people get involved in. They are great from the outward standpoint, but they have very little character. They're not people that follow God. Samson was one of them. And so what you find is during the period of the judges, you have a series of judges who really are not very much in tune with God. And in the midst of all this debauchery and morass and difficulties and, and gloom come this little bitty beautiful flower that comes up that we call the book of Ruth. And what's fascinating here is that from the outward standpoint, we would know a lot about a Samson or we would know a lot about some other person like a Gideon who fought great battles or a Deborah who was a judge or whatever. We would know about these but nowhere in the book of Judges do you see a discussion of Ruth and Boaz. They're unknowns. Had it not been for this story, we wouldn't know about these people. But that's how it is with us. Think about the society in which we live today. With, and I don't want to get into all sorts of things going on in our culture because there are plenty that, that I'm not very happy about. I see us decaying and decaying, decaying more and more as a culture. But in the middle of this decay, there are little bitty households like a Ruth and a Naomi in which God is doing something very special. The world is not paying attention to it. The world is not paying attention to you if you're a person of character, if you're a person seeking to follow the way of the Lord. It may not notice you and you may not be on news. But God is noticing you, and it's God who is in control. And even in the midst of the difficulties, it's God who's turning everything out for the good. Even if people don't know it, God knows it. And that's all that counts because ultimately there's a reckoning day, and God knows it. Ruth is a story like that. Because in the days when the judges were judging, there was a famine in the land. Now, what's fascinating here? is that this man by the name of Eli Melech, which is Eli is my God in Hebrew, Melech is the word for king. Eli Melech, his name is my God is king. That's pretty, uh, you know, boy, you know, I, my God is king. I'm really proud about that. And then he is married to a woman by the name of Nahomi, Naomi, Naomi, which means pleasant. She was pleasant, just a nice person. And they have two children by the name of Machlon and Chleon, and Machlon and Chilion, which means basically sickly and wasting away. I hate to tell you, I assume that these are names they got afterwards when they saw how they turned out. I hope these are not, hey, boy, the kids, but let's name him sickly. You know, let's name him, he's wasting away. I suspect, you know, like in the Bible, sometimes you get names based on what occurs, and I suspect that's what happened. I hope that's what happened. But nonetheless, you have Elimelech and Naomi who are in Bethlehem with her two kids. 
and there is a famine. But Bethlehem, Beit Lachem, means the house of bread. So here they are in the house of bread with no bread. There's a famine in the land. And so what takes place is that they go from Bethlehem to Moab. Now, Bethlehem is in the land of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, of the land of Israel. And that's the place that God sent the Jewish people. That's where I want you to go. It's the land I've given you. Ultimately, he says, of chapter 15 of, of uh, Genesis, all the way from the, the river of Egypt, probably in the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates, all the way up into Babylonia, and everything in between is yours forever. Well, they haven't gotten maybe half of that, third of that. They have some more to go. But nonetheless, at this point, he said, that's my promise that I'm giving to you. I will not fail you. And so what took place is that they left, though, the land of Israel, the land of promise, and went to a pagan land of Moab, where they worshipped over there a god called Chemosh, who sacrificed children on fire, burned them as sacrifice to gain favor. What a place to take your kids to. But nonetheless, they go there. And they get to Moab because there seems to be adequate bread. And I just showed, showed you here a, a couple of pictures of the, uh, the way Moab looks. I've been over there before. And uh, give you, that's not going to give you a good idea. But nonetheless, uh, they get to the land. And what they find is uh, with these children, they stay there a number of years to the point that we have um, working this new gadget. Let's see here. That the two sons, Machlon and Kilion, they find wives. One by the name of, of uh, I can't even think of her name now. Uh, what's the first one's name? Two wives, Orpah and the other, oh yeah, Orpah. That's what I want to say. Orpah is a, uh, the name that you know by Oprah. Because Orpah, well, excuse me, Oprah was supposed to be called Orpah. And they misspelled it in the hospital, and now she's Oprah, which I don't know what it means. But then you have one called Ruth, which means friend. And so they marry wives. And then we find out that sickly and wasting away die. As does Elimelech, and you're left over with Naomi and Ruth. Now, if you know anything about the, the uh, social welfare system of, of Moab, uh, it wasn't very good. And so without husbands and inheritance and ability to, to till the land and so forth, you're in trouble, as is Naomi and Ruth now. And what we find is that uh, Naomi says, you know, uh, I'm going back to Judah because Yahweh is visiting his people, which means there's no longer a famine. And so Naomi is heading back and she tells her daughters-in-law, well, why don't you stay with your family? Uh, you go back to your mother's house, each of you, and, and you'll have plenty because I haven't got anything to offer. Well, we know the story that Orpah goes back home. But Ruth, she stays with uh, Naomi. It said, Ruth clung to her, Ruth 1.14. Clung, she clung to her. And then that famous statement that people use at weddings sometimes, which has uh, nothing to do with the wedding, 
It says, Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. That's a woman to a mother-in-law. Remember that. And so what you have is an indication of how Ruth is by her character. She is a woman who has a sense of loyalty. Do you see that? She's a woman of loyalty. It would have been easy to go back to mom and dad back home. But she says, I have committed myself to you. And she says, where you go, I'm going to go. And the key thing, even though I am a Moabitess, your people will become my people. And even better, your God will become my God. And that becomes important. Uh, you know, one thing I find interesting in the... Um, get back one. Forgive me for my... We weren't able to set up things like I'm used to using. Uh, the, uh, the fact is that when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, several women show up, which is unusual in a genealogy. Uh, one was named Tamar. Uh, who had a great difficulty in Genesis chapter 38 uh, with, uh, I don't want to go into the whole story, but viewed as a prostitute of a sort. And then you had a woman by the name of Rahab, who was a prostitute and ran a house of prostitution in Jericho, but became faithful. And then you have Ruth, who is a Moabitess, who is not viewed to be very, very fabled among the Jews. The Moabites were viewed as outcasts. And then Bathsheba, who was mixed up with David. Four women, and yet all of these women are important to the entire genealogy of Jesus, which says even from great difficulties, God brings good things. I think again about that passage in Romans chapter 28, where it says all things work together for the for the good, for those who love God, those who are the called ones according to his purpose. And I think we see that in the text with Ruth. Now let's go into the interlude of these uh, four scenes. Scene one, interlude says, do not call me Naomi. She goes to the watering hole. When you get to town after a long trip, back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, one of the first things you do is go and get some water to drink. And what you do, you have a well. And you go draw water from the well and you drink. And where do people hang out? Around the well. And so she gets back to town and the women see Naomi walk up and she's walking up with Ruth. And, and they say, oh, pleasant one's here. Happy one. Contented. And she looks at these other women and says, don't you call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Which means bitter. What, a, what an awakening. What a welcoming. Uh, you know, they say, hey, it's good to see Naomi. She says, leave me alone. I'm bitter. Why is she bitter? Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, has not been good to me. Now, I know you've never thought that in your entire life, that your God somehow didn't come through like you wanted him to. Because you've been reading that passage in Romans 28, is though all things work together for my good, whatever I want, because I like God. You ever seen the four spiritual laws? You ever seen that little booklet? Anybody? 
I'm talking about four spiritual laws the Campus Crusade used to give out. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What if it said it like Paul's? You know, remember what Ananias said to Paul? He says, God sent me to tell you that he has called you and he has showed you what great things you must suffer for him. What a call to the ministry. What a call to Christ. You know, God loves you and wants you to go through distress and difficulty and persecution and rejection. I wonder how many people that bring in. No, it's always that God loves you and wants you to really be happy. It's not always that way. And Naomi thought that because God had not done what she wanted, that she was bitter about it. She couldn't have a happy face in the midst of the difficulties. I think she should probably go back and read the book of Joseph or the story of Joseph. Remember what Joseph did? Every time he found himself in a situation, he kept moving. Just obeyed God. And so he says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Interestingly enough here, she does not use God's personal covenant faithful name. Yahweh is a God of covenant, the God of faithfulness. Instead, she doesn't use Yahweh here. She uses the word Almighty. She said, that big bully, you know, the all-powerful one, has made me bitter. Well, I'm sure that you've never been like Naomi in your life, where things weren't going your way and you just sort of put your head down and walk, you know, things are not going like I want. Well, notice, I went out full, Ruth 121. And Yahweh has brought me home again empty. He has afflicted me. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that a father who loves his child, he chastens his child. The book of Proverbs says if you don't chasten your child, you hate your child. Interesting idea in light of our views today. He says, if you chasten your child, you demonstrate your love. If you don't, you demonstrate your hate. God has maybe done something in Naomi's life. She does not appreciate it. She does not accept it and embrace it and move with it. Instead, she resists it and fights against it, sort of like Saul did. Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the golds. He says, I'm doing something here, and it's hard for you to resist. Well, we find ourselves in Ruth 121 at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, we're going to move on faster now because what we're doing, and we're looking at the story, find Ruth and Naomi going back to the family household. And, you know, they left their home when they went to Moab. They had to get back, make a few repairs, dust a few things away, clean up, but made themselves at home, and they're all home again. And now we've got a problem. What is it? They need to eat. They got some water, and now they need to eat. And so... Naomi's an older woman. She's not going out to the fields to work. Ruth is a young woman. She's going to go out to the field. And they had a great social welfare program in Israel. Uh, they didn't have people standing on the side of the road next to their donkeys and so forth with will work for food. They actually had a provision that every field provided a portion for the poor so that the poor would not go hungry. But they did not make it a policy, however, that the landowners go out and cut it all down bundle it all up and deliver it to each household they said it's there it's for you come and get it you cut it you bring it home and they provided that that's the way they took care of those who did not have 
they worked for their food just like everybody else. And so what happened is that Ruth went out to the field to get her food because they didn't have food. And while there, something special happened. And there's some great stuff here to even talk about. But I want to bring in the story of Boaz. Now, who is Boaz? Boaz is the son of Rahab the harlot. Isn't it interesting how the story gets tangled in together here? The harlot's son meets the Moabitess of Naomi. What a pair. From a standpoint of Israel, how people would look sometimes and how people did, how well they were off. Well, what we find is that Ruth came to that field and Boaz said, Listen, Ruth, why don't you just stay around here? Now, this is what you call pre-dating. Now, he hasn't asked her out for a date yet, but he's ensuring he knows where she is each day. Keep her eye on him, told her his men, keep an eye on her, watch over her, don't let anybody bother her, make sure she gets what she needs, because Boaz has plans, and he wants to get to know this person, even though she's a Moabitess. He said, don't go gleaning in another field, Ruth 2.8, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. And then, of course, she reciprocates and says she appreciates it. She says, I'm a foreigner. You know, I'm you, know you probably want to reject me knowing now I'm not a Jew. I'm a Moabite. He says, no problem. My mother was a harlot. You know? I mean, that's where we're at here, you know? And so, get this thing going again. Let's see. There we are. And though Ruth responds to something in Ruth 2.12, I want you to pay attention to that. Because of how Boaz treated Ruth, Ruth says something interesting. Yahweh repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Or maybe that's Boaz to Ruth, whichever it is. But the point of it is, is that may Yahweh, the God who is a covenant God, who takes care of his people, watch over you. Actually, that was Boaz. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight. Well, what you find out here in verse 12 of chapter 2, if you're taking notes, is that Boaz, when he says this, may Yahweh the God of Israel watch over you and guard you over in his wings, like a mother hen, we find later in the story that it's through Boaz himself that this prayer is fulfilled. That's significant. Because remember in James, the book of James, half-brother of Jesus who wrote that, he said one thing, don't say to people, be fed and be clothed and be filled. You know, God, you know, go in peace. God bless you. Have a great day. But he says, open up yourself to them. In other words, oftentimes our prayers can be answered through our efforts. It's not just God bless you, I'm really wishing well for your life. But God bless you, and I want to be the one to fulfill the prayer in your life. And that's what Boaz has done. He says, I am going to, ultimately, you find out he's going to be the one that answers the prayer that he gives in chapter 2. On to verse 16. We find that he then provides ways that Ruth be taken care of because he says, you know, to the workmen, be sure that when you're gleaning to leave a little extra on where, where she's standing. I want her taken care of. 
And uh, then Ruth goes home. She gets home to know Naomi, and she, Naomi obviously would have asked the same thing that you would have asked. And, you know, how'd your day go? And she said, well, fine. And so uh, she says, I work with a man called Boaz. And guess what? Boaz is a near kinsman. I want to skip ahead a little bit to chapter 3, verse 4, where we find out that Naomi plots to bring about God's will. <laughs> because she says, Boaz is a near kinsman according to the rules. Boaz can marry you. He will be a near kinsman. I know we think today, yuck, marry a near kinsman. Well, you weren't living in ancient Israel. You got a lot, of, lot bigger pool today to work from. But nonetheless, marry your near kinsman and says, go to the threshing floor where Boaz is going to be and lay at his feet, which doesn't sound very circumspect. I, you know, I wouldn't want my daughter to do that. But nonetheless, this is a practice in Israel. And she goes to the threshing floor and she finds Boaz there and some things take place which are really outside our cultural... Um, seems uncomfortable our comfort level but she finds herself there uh, she uncovers him and she says you owe to me the right of near kinsman what does that mean I'm the one that you're to marry have children through for your for uh, the son of Naomi which probably would be here McClone I guess who did not have children through me that's called the law of redemption or the, the near uh, kinsman redeemer uh, where you basically would do that to keep the, the, the tribes and the generations going. And so what we find is that because of this, uh, Boaz uh, agrees to do that and has to do something that's very unusual. That's in chapter 4, if you want to go there. Chapter 4, verse 1. So what Boaz did, he went to the city hall. Ancient cities, if you were with me in Israel, for example, you would go to a couple of gates, like the gate at Tel Dan, and that's where they settled disputes. If you went to the gate of Sodom, where I was excavating at last January, uh, over in Jordan, uh, if we have the city gates there. If you were to go to any of these places, they had city gates, and city gates were where they kept the documents, the official reports. That's where all the basic business of the city was done, like a courthouse. And so at the gate of the city, Naomi, excuse me, Boaz, came and wanted to declare that he wanted to take Ruth as uh, under the right of kinsman redeemer. There was a conflicting party who said, no, I have first right. And he says, fine, you can have it, but you've got to have a lot of money and pay out some other money to make it happen. He says, I don't want to do that. They had a custom in those days. They would take off their shoe. By the way, if you notice, this is written 200 years later. And the text says, in, in those days, they had a custom. That if you want to do this, you take off a shoe, hand it to the other guy, and that said, a deal's made. That's how they contracted. Now, today, we just sign over our lives. And so, uh, in, in that situation, they made a deal, and he says, you know, I'm not going to do it. You can take care of it, Boaz. And it happened. And so, we find out that he says, I will redeem it, and I will take the inheritance. And let's move to the end of the story here in, chapter, in, in the scene four. Notice 4.13 following. Here's the conclusion of the story. Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son by the name of Obed. May his name be famous. And Ruth says, uh, Naomi says something very interesting to Ruth. Because Naomi had been so concerned about 
She lost her sons, lost her husbands. God has dealt with her bitterly. And she didn't pay much attention to Ruth at all. She didn't say, man, things have been tough, but I've got Ruth. It's almost Ruth is, you know. But notice what she says. says, may he be a restorer of life and a nurture of your old age. This is uh, the women said to her. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Which I guarantee is a big compliment. And they called this child Obed. He is a father of Jesse, the father of David. So what's the theology of the book? I started out with the fact that the hidden God who is in control is faithful to his promise. See, Elimelech thought that God couldn't sustain him in Canaan, but he had to go to Moab. But God knew that and had prepared for him a guy by the name of Ruth, or a woman by the name of Ruth, to come back with Naomi afterwards to actually bring great blessing to his posterity. They didn't see that, but God was there. Remember Exodus chapter 3, God said to Israel, I will be with you always. Jesus in the New Testament says, Lo, I'm with you always. God is hidden from us in many ways. But even though He is hidden, He is in control. Because the circumstances, even to that statement in Ruth where it says, and she just so happened by accident to come to the field of the near kinsman Boaz. There's no accidents with God. There's only planning and design. And God works all things out for the good to those that love Him. He's hidden, but He's in control, and He's faithful to His covenant. Let's say just a few things about the theology. One is the names of God in the book. The name Yahweh, which is the name, the primary name for God as the covenant God. That's His personal name is like my name is Wayne, it's not Professor or whatever, or Brother, it's, it's Wayne. Personal name, that's the personal name of God. It's a name of covenant faithfulness. Seventeen times in the book. We find prayers throughout the book where Naomi prays for Ruth and Boaz prays for, for uh, Ruth and, and, uh, and, and, and you have Naomi praying for, for Ruth and you've got all these prayers that are going on throughout the book and you find that these prayers are ultimately fulfilled and I've got a whole long list of prayers which uh, I don't know if they'll come up there but the point of it is you have all these various prayers in the book well let me ask you when you pray do you expect anything to happen or is it something we do is it a formality or is it something we really believe now remember that our prayers may not come about our answers may not come about the way we pray Fortunately, God knows a lot more than I do, and He's far more wise than I am. I remember uh, one of the greatest theologically accurate songs is the song of Garth Brooks, which thank God for unanswered prayers. The point of it is, uh, we oftentimes pray in such ways that if God answered our prayers, we would really be sad about it later. But God, who is behind the scenes, may not answer the prayers the way we anticipated or the way we demanded but he will answer them to bring about what is the good. 
And here you find throughout the book all these prayers for all these things, and yet we find that it is God who by the end of the book demonstrates that He is a faithful God. See, we wonder, our lives are filled with difficulties and sickness and persecution and all these things that seem to be out of sorts, and we say, where is God? That's especially true at times of grief. Where is God? There are people who say, God, you know, He didn't do what He should have done in this situation. This person should have stayed alive and didn't, or this person should have not been sick and was. And whatever we say, God should have done what I wanted done, not realizing that God does what He wants to do, not what we want to do, because He knows what's best. Why would an um, uh, all-knowledgeable and all-wise God follow my directions? He would cease to be all-wise, to follow me. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do five minutes from now. God does. I just trust Him because He's faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to His promise. He will bring it about right if I'll just trust Him. Well, we find all sorts of blessedness. We find God acting. And the thing is, there's a tremendous application at the end of the book, the conclusion. The story speaks to us. Let me just read it. Various events take place in our lives and God has spoken of, but no great events from God usually take place. How many have seen the crossing of a Red Sea? Anybody? You know, anybody raised from the dead in this group? See, a lot of these things that we think about may not be the things that occur. They are fairly rare. They're called miracles. That's why they're rare. But God is constantly involved in our lives moment by moment, day by day, working out our lives so that ultimately it will bring Him the greatest glory and for our greatest good, if we're just trusting. And the book of Ruth is a good example of that. Something that did not look so promising to begin with, by the end of the book, had great glory and fulfillment of promise. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for all your goodness. You're a God who watches over us, a God who keeps us, a God who has given us a book like Ruth that we can actually see how you work, not according to the ways of human beings, which oftentimes are very short-sighted and unwise, but ways that actually reveal yourself to us, your love, your care, your faithfulness. Help us to be trusting and not bitter. Help us to look forward in hope and not despair. Uh, Father, help us to be appreciative for all the good things and have gratitude for all the good that you brought to us and will continue to do so in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray.